0: Victorians left an indelible stamp on culture that continues to be in evidence today, not least of which is their refinement of the realist fiction medium known as the novel, and their innovations which led to the birth of fantasy and science fiction, two of today's most popular genres. This period also gave rise to a Victorian crisis of faith, as the traditional Christian beliefs that had underpinned British society for centuries faced new challenges from scientific discoveries, the writings of Charles Darwin, and exposure to other cultures. In her book, Genres of Doubt, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and the Crisis of Victorian Faith, Elizabeth M. Sanders argues that these two shifts, one literary and one cultural, were deeply intertwined. She writes that the novel, a literary form that was developed as a vehicle for realism when infused with unreal elements, offers a space to ponder questions about the supernatural, the difference between belief and knowledge, and humanity's place in the world. She revisits familiar representative works from the period, organizing her analysis around how they exemplify particular responses to, or strategies for, dealing with the problems raised by the new questioning of the supernatural. Elizabeth M. Sanders holds a Ph.D. in English Literature from the University of Iowa. She works in Corporate and Foundation Relations at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and speaks at conferences about career transitions for Ph.D. graduates. She was recently a speaker at the Beyond the Professoriate online conference, and her book was recently nominated for the Mythopoeic Society's Scholarship Award in Myth and Fantasy Studies. She joins me today to talk about her new book. Hello, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As I've said before, one of the great things about our channel is the broad range of topics we're able to cover. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the fiction coming out of the Victorian era, early science fiction and fantasy, to be precise, and how this writing tells us something about how these people grappled with their growing sense of disbelief in the supernatural and an increased questioning of the authority of the church. I was really excited to have the opportunity to cover this book on our show as my area of academic research is actually in literature and particularly how literature intersects with scientific development. So I enjoyed this book very much. Eliza, thank you so much for coming on the show. First, let me congratulate you. I believe that Genres of Doubt has been nominated for the Mythopoeic Society's Scholarship Award in Myth and Fantasy Studies.
1: Yes. Yeah, I will be finding out on July 22nd whether it has won. So um, I'm pretty excited.
0: No kidding. I'll have my fingers crossed Thank you. for you. So bef- before we get into the book, I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to pursue a PhD in English Let's
1: Sure. Um, so I went into my PhD program uh, immediately after getting my bachelor's in English. Uh, the decision to pursue a doctorate was um, – it was like a lot of my decisions, to be honest. It, it seemed very thought out, but it was kind of more based on the gut feeling. Um, the The summer before my senior year of college, I was working in the nonprofit for an internship. Um, and I was surrounded by all these other um, – all these other women who were former English majors. And, uh, until, um, until that point, I kind of had been considering graduate school, but had thought, oh, you know, nothing about me makes me any different than any other English major out there. Like everyone loves and is just as passionate about literature as I am. So, um, why should I be the one to go get a PhD? Um, But kind of like meeting more adults who had been English majors in the past, uh, you know, it sort of made me realize that I did love it in a a different way, a way that was more intense. Um, And that summer I ended up, I started studying for the GRE and, uh, and decided to go and get a PhD. Um, Granted, my, my undergraduate professors told me it would only take four years, so I, I went into the whole thing with some very rose-colored glasses. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's how I, I started to begin my PhD in literature. Um, and I also just want to say I am so thrilled to be on this podcast. You've had some really amazing interviewees um, in the past, and, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: Oh, wonderful. Well, that's great. Uh, So next, uh, tell us how you came to write this book in particular.
1: Yeah, uh, almost as soon as I began learning about Victorian literature in my undergraduate work, I was fascinated by this thing called the crisis of faith, which we'll get into in more detail as we discuss the book. Um, But I first encountered it through this really moving poetry that was coming out of this period of religious anxiety. There are just some Heartbreaking verses that hammer home how new it was for the Victorians to have to negotiate their religious beliefs with all these other facts that they were learning about the world, particularly through new scientific discoveries. You know, we, today we really take that for granted, this idea that if, if we choose to be um, religious, then we have to find a way to kind of square that with all these other facts that we know about the world. Um, but that concept was brand new in the 19th century. And a lot of Victorians were very tortured by that. Um, A classic example of the poetry I'm talking about is In Memoriam A.H.H., this really long poem that Tennyson wrote after his friend died. And it's really this extended meditation on grief. But it's also this opportunity for him um, to grapple with what science and new knowledge was meaning about the possibility of heaven, the meaning of death, um, and, and just the meaning of everything surrounding these questions he was dealing with in his grief. Um, one of the verses is Are um, God and nature, nature with a capital N, are God and nature then at strife that nature lends such evil dreams, so careful of the type she seems, so careless of the single life? I mean, that is like straight from this emotional turmoil over the theory of evolution, right? So she's so careful of the type, but she cares nothing for the single being, the single life. Um, so that's yeah, the, so I was just fascinated with that with how how much how hard people were feeling this change in in religious culture. At the same time, I've always been an avid reader and watcher of fantasy and science fiction. Although I had been a little hesitant to bring that interest into my academic work for fear of not being taken very seriously. Um, But I eventually did realize you have to choose something that you really, really love to survive the dissertation years. Uh, So I started thinking about the relationship between those genres I love and the crisis of faith. And this book is eventually what came of it. Um, on the one hand it surprised me how perfectly they seemed to fit together these two topics. But on the other hand, it is something I've always somehow sensed and loved about speculative fiction is its ability to ask, um, these really huge questions and deal with them, um, with an emotional truth, um, even within a framework that is so very detached from reality.
0: All right. So to begin with the book, um, I was going to suggest we set the scene. You've started to do that a little bit. And I briefly mentioned that the Victorian era was a period of dramatic shifts in belief due to scientific discovery and industrialism. So let's start there. Uh, Can you flesh that out for us a bit more? Uh, What were the major factors changing the landscape and how did they connect specifically to this new phenomenon of religious doubt on a broader cultural scale?
1: Yeah, so the biggest change and the one that most people tend to think about and know about is the advent of some huge scientific discoveries. And the star of that story is Charles Darwin, um publishing the Origin of Species and the Descent of Man, um, both of which just rocked everyone's world um for good or for ill uh, so that that was huge, and thinking about that Tennyson poem kind of helps understand one of the reasons that was that that thrust so many people into kind of this emotional turmoil is the revelation that um You know, or the implication from evolution that God's eye is not on the sparrow, perhaps. You know, there's that famous hymn, "His eye is on the sparrow," but this idea that the weakest um, of certain species are destined to die, and that's the only way the world kind of moves forward. That is troubling for a, a Christian culture that has been taught to value the weak and raise them up and that the weakest shall be first and and all that sort of thing. Um, Paleontology and geology were also moving forward by leaps and bounds. So people were discovering dinosaurs. People were being able to more accurately measure the earth's age. Uh, You know, at the beginning of the century, if your college professor asked you how old the earth was, you would have answered 6,000 years because that's what the Bible says. And that was everyone's best answer to how old the earth was. But by the end of the century, they started to figure out that that is horribly, horribly wrong. And the earth is so much, so much older than that. Um, so there were all of these huge shakeups to what had before seemed very firm realities on which to stand. Um, when we think about the crisis of faith though, we have to think kind of beyond the scientific stuff. Um, this idea of today that religion and science are this kind of eternal war, that that sort of started in the Victorian period. But really, science alone is not enough to make a culture question their faith to this degree. There were tons of Victorian scientists that still were very com- committed believers. There are tons of scientists today that are um, very committed uh, people of religious faith. So we need to also remember that the British Empire brought other cultures more closely in contact with ordinary British people who were then able to witness other ways of practicing faith and being spiritual that reminded them that their, their way is not the only one. Um, you know, and and we have that experience today. If, you know, you've been kind of raised in a fairly insular culture and you start encountering people who have really firm devoted, uh, spiritual beliefs that are different, then you kind of have to face, well, why am I picking mine? Um, and the Victorians had to face that too. Um, the general effort of the Victorian age to make culture more moral, um, which was this kind of just general cultural project, also urged them to start questioning the inherent morality of some of Christianity's tenets, questioning things like hell and the concept of eternal punishment for a finite crime. You know, does that match what we as a culture are saying is, is moral? And then finally, the Age of Enlightenment, that Age of Reason in the 18th century, had trickled down to the wider culture by this point. And with it, the idea that there is value in the individual, there's value in your individual choices. You don't have to necessarily be guided by culture. Um, And that development was really necessary to create the approach to religious faith that we have today and that really began with the Victorians. Um, You know, an analogy I kind of have been thinking about is that before a lot of these changes, Christian faith was kind of like the air you breathed. It affected everyone and everything around you. You could generally assume that everyone else was breathing basically the same air. It was just this inescapable part of the culture. Um, so much so you didn't really even notice or realize that, that things could be different. Um, but uh, beginning in the 19th century and, and kind of now, I guess religious faith is a little more like underwear, Like, other people don't really know what you have on unless you tell them. Um, And we assume everyone is wearing underwear of some kind, just like we assume everyone has some approach to spirituality, even if it's just to outright reject it. But we think of it as something that's private and personal rather than something you are constantly exhibiting in public. Um, You know, unless someone comes out and announces something about their religious faith, it's not something we're going to assume or ask, or, or we can even definitely know. Um, so that private personal aspect is critical to the crisis of faith, because when you are, when you realize that you alone are the one responsible for deciding what you believe in God, that is terrifying. Um, and You know, again, today we're kind of used to that reality of belief, Um, but it was new in the 19th century. And this book is about how people are dealing with that new reality through fiction.
0: Hmm, That's great. I love those analogies, I think that works really well. and uh, and so similarly, some other assumptions that we we perhaps make about the state of affairs being the way things always were. Um, I think it's kind of the same with the literature, because uh, it's easy to imagine that the novel, uh, which is a storytelling medium that most of us are intimately familiar with, now it's actually um, it's easy to assume it's been around since the beginning of writing, but it's actually much more recent uh, than that. So, can you describe for us where the novel is at during the Victorian period, and why this positioned it a- as positioned it as a medium so well suited to the sort of cultural introspection that the Victorians seem to need.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. The novel um, is something that I think people don't realize is such a recent development, because now if someone says, you know, I'm reading a book, we all assume it's a novel. Um, and they're just it's such a dominant form of literature today. Um But in the whole of human, you know, creativity, it's fairly new. The first European novel is generally agreed to be Don Quixote um, in the really early 17th century. But in English, what we all think of as the novel um, was really developed in the 1700s. Uh, You can see with a lot of the early ones, like Robinson Crusoe, how they grew out of these other genres that that were pre-existing. So... Robinson Crusoe grew out of travel literature, which was very popular genre at the time, but in Robinson Crusoe, it was just made up, no one had actually had this experience. So people started experimenting with, um, with current genres, but if they just made up the story, and that's kind of how the novel started to be born. Um, it's the 19th century, though, that that scholars kind of all agree is this heyday, this beautiful golden age of the realism or the novel of realism. Um, you know, in the 1810s, we've got Jane Austen publishing these brilliant comedies of manners with this impeccable writing style. In the 30s and 40s, we've got Dickens coming around and you know, shedding light on London's social problems and, um, giving us these big casts of characters in the sixties, we were getting George Eliot. in the seventies and eighties. We're getting Thomas Hardy. It's just this parade of writers who had honed this medium to just near perfection in terms of being able to perform the task that they wanted to perform with literature. Um, so at the same time, though, that these incredible works of realism are coming out, fantasy and science fiction start creeping into the novel as well. Um, so, what's new here, obviously, is not the actual elements of the supernatural, since those go back to just the very beginnings of literature. Um, although, and I, I want to talk about this a little later, um, earlier examples of the supernatural in literature don't cause the same readerly effect because their original readers would not have thought of those as the supernatural or the or speculative fiction or fantasy. You know, the the auditors of the Iliad would have thought oh yes athena athena is uh, you know that exists that's not something someone's just made up um anyway so what's new is the form of the novel which was really built for realism expanding to include fantasy and science fiction plots now those who know the development of these genres well will say wait 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 no the gothic was speculative and that started in the 18th century and that is true um Uh, the first Gothic novel is the castle of Otranto in 1764. And and there's kind of this ghost and spirit in this castle, but there's a couple reasons why this book genres of doubt doesn't begin with that. Um, so first is that the Gothic was a genre that sometimes included the supernatural and sometimes it didn't. So, um, uh, in Radcliffe's the mysteries of Otranto or the mysteries of Udolpho, all these O words, um, You think something supernatural the whole time and then it isn't, but it's still the Gothic. So unlike fantasy and science fiction, it was not defined by the existence of the supernatural. And then also while the Gothic in the 18th century is where the supernatural kind of started entering the novel, the 19th century is when that could, what that actually could entail really spread out and widened into the varied forms of speculative fiction that we recognize today. Uh, So the central idea behind this book, um, getting to your question about how the novel speaks to this reality for the Victorians, is that this literary development is really bound up with the religious concerns of the time and the crisis of faith. So Charles Taylor, who wrote this really thick book called A Secular Age, has this term called the eminent frame, which is very difficult to explain well. But it basically means that the context in which we now do everything— have relationships, react to change, even articulate our religious beliefs is inherently secular. So if you're a believer in today's Western world, you have no choice, but to find a way to negotiate those beliefs and something supernatural within this eminent frame. So I think that the fantasy and science fiction novel, which I end up just calling the speculative novel because the Victorians didn't really, you know, divide it up into groups like we do. Um, That that novel reflects that state of belief in its literary form. Um, There are supernatural elements in in these kinds of books within a format and style that was built for realism. They're contained within a frame of of realism, um, but are about something more. So that combination creates this unique literary space in which to address topics like belief and doubt and reality and other issues of faith without explicitly wading into specific religious debates of a particular time. And we can see that because um, a lot of the emotional crises of of faith and beliefs that these books bring out are are applicable to today. Um, they can address the emotional realities of the crisis of faith without getting hung up on the societal or political repercussions. So that's kind of the main theme that's
0: that's threaded throughout this book. So in the first chapter, you look at early science fiction. We've got uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was published 1818, and The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is by H.G. Wells from 1896. Uh, And you argue that each expresses disappointment with the perceived imperfections or outright absence of the kind of supernatural paternal care promised by Christianity. And then this then means that um, you reject the common interpretation of these works as cautionary tales about man's scientific hubris. So let's start with Frankenstein. If we're to understand the scientist as an analogy to the Christian God, how does that change our reading of the story? Yes.
1: Um, so first, I, I just I want to be clear. I don't actually reject that interpretation of the novels as cautionary tales about man's hubris. I think there's certainly that, and that's the reading that most of us are familiar with. Especially since in movies, that they've really focused on that particular reading. But my argument is that that's not enough to kind of understand how these books are engaging with religion. There's a mirror reading that needs to be recognized which is instead of the reader identifying with the scientist in the story instead of saying instead of stopping with oh you need to look at dr frankenstein and and see that you can't play god and and you can't be overly proud of your scientific achievements because that will only lead in downfall um this mirror reading would encourage the reader to identify with the monster and the creature and and figure out what is happening there and what that approach Gives us. So if we approach it that way, that turns this irresponsible, pretty uncaring college student of Dr. Frankenstein into an analogy or an amalgam of of God, the reader's creator, basically. Um, You know, along with the creature, if that's who we're identifying with, we can cry out, Oh, my creator, make me happy. Um, You know, if we've only seen the movies of Frankenstein, what the creature wants. Is a companion. He he can speak. He's very articulate. Uh, you know, he doesn't just grunt, and he comes to Frankenstein and begs him to have sympathy with how lonely and unhappy he is. Um, the only time the creature ends up becoming scary is when he's so angry at Frankenstein for creating him without any plan to make life bearable for him. Only then does he start becoming a villain and killing people. Now, this is not sort of an unfamiliar sentiment. It's not unrelatable, this idea of someone saying to God, you know, the fact that you created me and then seemingly have gone to no effort to make life somewhat happy for me, have in fact given me a life which is a misery, makes me incredibly angry to the point where I don't even blame myself for the bad things I'm going to do because of this anger. God's neglect of me and my resulting unhappiness is why I'm such a destructive person that is a very relatable human sentiment. It's awful, but we can see a human relating to that and experiencing that, um, kind of how the criticism of Frankenstein approaches seeing the creature as more human is often in, in seeing the creature as Mary Shelley, who had a lot of difficulties in her life. And, um, and you know child death and and an unhappy marriage in many ways and and they see the creature kind of voicing some concerns of mary shelley but i want to expand that so that the creature is voicing the the concerns and the questions of god that were being that were ha- maybe happening at the beginning of the 19th century um and that's this example of how this, uh, how this kind of speculative literary space allows the voicing of these complicated emotions about God. It's not providing an answer. It's not providing a simple way to solve it. It's not ending it with a Bible verse and a way to go home and like negotiate, um, a, a way to go home and kind of end those questions. It's, it's providing um, just a voice uh, for, for this very troubled um, state of the soul. Um, another thing to, to think about is that we can see in the monster a fear of what humanity may actually be now that science is kind of catching up a little bit to what we know today. So of course, Darwin hadn't happened by 1818, but knowledge of anatomy was was expanding and growing. Um, and the the picture of the monster, and if we we identify with the monster, we get this Concern that what if humanity is just an assemblage of parts rather than, um, you know, something with a soul that's been lovingly created by a personal God? What if we are just kind of like Lego bricks and you put them together in the exact right way and then we just turn on Um, rather than what we've hoped, which is that we're all kind of that this blessed, beloved child. Um, so that's another way in which, um, you know, science in one hand, on one hand is is in Frankenstein cautioning people not to get too carried away. On the other hand, we're seeing um, beyond that caution, a, a concern that science is going to
0: reveal something about humanity that we don't want to really know. Great. Okay. And so you find something similar happening in Dr. Moreau as well this analogy between a scientist and the God figure. So tell us how this plays out in this later novel and about the conclusions you're able to draw from comparing.
1: Yeah. So um, the Island of Dr. Moreau happens, as you said, far later in the century, almost toward almost at the very end and really has the same basic plot concept um, of a scientist creating a human or humans um, without kind of needing to turn to God at all. Uh, and, and putting these in the same chapter, these two books at different ends of the century with the same basic plot concept allows us to see what has changed and what's pressing on British minds that's different at the end of the century than at the beginning. So uh, a really brief summary, because I think people don't know Dr. Moreau nearly as well as Frankenstein. Um, it's a very strange book and an even stranger movie with uh, Val Kilmer, <laughs> if wanna experiment yeah. that. But um basically narrator is shipwrecked, ends up on this island where the only people on it are Dr. Moreau, his friend Montgomery, and all these other people that he at first thinks are sort of deformed humans, but then ends up discovering that there are these experiments of, of Dr. Moreau, who is obsessed with taking animals and performing all these surgeries on them to turn them into approximations of human beings. Of course, it all goes south and, um, you know, they all end up killing Dr. Moreau and Montgomery and the narrator, you know, sails away. So here we can also see an influence of science on how, what we fear humanity might actually be. Um, But now this is post Darwin. So the fear now is that humanity is just another animal. Um, If, you know, uh, Moreau can create out of animals through science something that actually tricks the narrator into thinking these are actually people. then what does that mean about all of us about um about the species about um the existence of god uh or if we've just evolved from you know bacteria or or you know uh apes or or whatever um then what does that mean for us and, and how we see humanity? Um, we also see this the effect of all of these decades of the crisis of faith in what happens when we put ourselves in the role of the creatures in the island of Dr. Moreau. So in this book, their experience of religion is reciting this law that has been taught to them by one of the humans living on the island. And it's basically a series of don'ts that's meant to keep them from reverting to their animal nature, it's things like thou shalt not walk on all fours. You shall not like drink water from the ground. You all these kinds of things. You, you should not draw blood. And they're made to associate disobeying this law with pain from their maker, Doctor Moreau. So this is already a way darker view of religion than in Shelley's work. You know. In Frankenstein, we still get this idea that there is a God and we do believe, but we're just very upset. And that God is pretty inadequate for what we want him to be. Here, um, H.G. Wells was an atheist. And here we can see him articulating his concern that we're all deep down just animals kind of being kept in line by religion out of the fear of just punishment. Um, He once called this book an exercise in youthful blasphemy. Um, and so he kind of he knew how dark this view of religion was. Uh, and in the novel and maybe in Wells' estimation, that view of religion or th- this type of religion is ultimately a failure because the animals do revert back to their nature and end up killing everybody. Um, it's not it's not effective in keeping us um... Uh, keeping us human, so why I put these two in the same chapter is that they 're just this really wonderful example of what 's happened over the nineteenth century. You know in eighteen eighteen the creation, the thing we we can sympathize with, begs his God for happiness and then is sort of despairing at how inadequate that God seems to be. But there is definitely a God, but in eighteen ninety six the creations are imprisoned by a God that the reader knows is real, or, or I mean, the reader knows is very, very inadequate, but they don't even have the intelligence to question that God until the God is found dead, basically, and they, they kind of all rise up against him. Um, so, uh, yes, I guess that's my concluding thought on that chapter.
0: <laughs> uh, next, you turn to some of the earliest examples of modern fantasy novels, Uh, which includes George MacDonald's Fantasties and the Princess and the Goblin, as well as The Water Babies by Charles Kingsley, Kingsley, and the less well-known Flatland by Edwin Abbott. And all of these date from between the 1850s and the 1880s. And I found it really interesting how these novels all seem to share a common desire to encourage their readers to express patience and compassion for those grappling with religious doubts. Yeah, all of them
1: share this really great technique that fantasy offers that very few other genres really can. Maybe no other genre can. Because when you're talking about doubt and fantasy, you can set the reader up to be already in the position of the, the believer. By the time the doubt appears in a fantasy story, the reader has spent pages and pages taking the fantasy elements, whether they're fairies or dragons or magic or whatever, at total face value. Within the story, they're real to that reader. So by the time doubt appears, the reader can face it like a believer would. So all of these fantasies are utilizing that technique to be able to look at doubt from the stance of a believer. Um, and I organize these novels in the chapter chronologically, but also by where they locate doubt. So Fantasties locates doubt in the hero of the story. Um, I'm not really going to go through and summarize the plots of all of these. I'll just get to kind of the crucial bit of, of where doubt figures in. Um, what's interesting in Fantasties is not so much that the hero is doubting, that, say, magic is real, but that the novel shows us what's so appealing about doubt, that it makes us feel more secure, more adult, and grown up, more proud of oneself for being someone who can face the world for what it truly is. Um, And that connects to Charles Taylor's who I talked about earlier, his description of often what's most convincing, he says, about atheism is less the story it tells about the world and more, the story it tells about the atheist. That the story that it tells about the atheist is a story of moving from childhood to adulthood, um, and being able to bravely face the harsh realities of life, um, which is a very complimentary story. Um, and I saw his that this description of um, of that story and and what's convincing about doubt in Fantastes, you know, something in the eighteen fifties in how we see the hero feeling that way and then having to come to an, uh, another realization that no, the magic actually is real and I've been i have been, I've been kind of fooling myself. The Water Babies uh, by Charles Kingsley, a little later, locates doubt in the reader of the story. So in this novel, the fantastical elements are located within the real world of 19th century Britain. It, all of the fairies and all that kind of exists under the sea. No one has to go through a special portal or walk through a wardrobe or, or something like that. So because of that, the book is filled with the sides and comments that say, you know, why couldn't this be true? Why couldn't there be fairies and magical beings under the sea? We don't know. And it it brings science into the story, not as an enemy, but as this kind of trustworthy friend that will eventually perhaps show that our beliefs, the supernatural are real. Um, One example is that Kingsley notes that once upon a time, people believed in dragons and, and then they decided, no, those are a myth. Those are just pretend. And then, but just, you know, a, a little while before he wrote this book, paleontologists started discovering dinosaur bones, proving that quote unquote dragons are in fact real. So he's addressing the reader's doubt, saying that science is not the enemy. It often ends up proving that the fantastic is is actually possible. Uh, the Princess and the Goblin, again, a little later by George MacDonald, locates doubt in the heroine's closest friends. And it, that's interesting because it's a children's book that's sort of addressing what do you do when one of your closest friends doubts and is a skeptic. Um, the princess visits this ghostly grandmother who lives in a tower and gives her advice, um, but who is kind of a spirit or a ghost. And when she takes her friend, Curdy to go see her, he can't see the grandmother, and what I found most striking about this incident um, is when I, the princess says, "You won't believe me, Curdie." He says, "No, I can't, and I can't help it." This idea that doubt and skepticism is not a choice um, is is moving and kind of a signal of where we are in that crisis of faith. As you know, as British culture had slowly turned to trusting m- more in individual perceptions and beliefs rather than just kind of um, than than in cultures and society or the church's beliefs, it was possible to feel really helpless against one's own doubt and one's own unbelief. Um, One of my favorite quotes of the whole century is from this letter that John Ruskin wrote to a friend. Uh, talking about his own doubt and how he wants to believe but it's not really working and he says if only the if only the geologists would let me alone I feel their dreadful hammer in every cadence of a bible verse i I just love that that's that's so evocative and and sad <laughs> um, so then lastly flatland locates doubt in society and perhaps in kind of everyone potentially um, this is a very strange little book um, that's kind of a fantasy of about a two-dimensional world. The main character is a square. Every, every, the whole world he lives in is two dimensional and everyone are just little shapes. And then he gets visited by a sphere who takes him to the world of three dimensions. Um, And, and he ends up believing that there is a world of three dimensions and then goes back to his own world. And, um, and no one believes him. So, when the square returns to um, his land, yeah, he ends up in, imprisoned because he's had this personal experience that we as the reader know is true because we live in a land of three dimensions. Um, but no one else does. So the text seems to say about belief that personal experience can be as reliable a path to truth as empirical proof.
0: Okay, so you, uh, let's go back to Charles Taylor. Um, you talk about his notion of the third path, which is essentially the attempt to reconcile societal norms based in religious belief with rapidly expanding doubt. So throughout your book, you return to this concept to show how the novels in each chapter propose a third-path type solution. If we were to put the novels in this chapter in these terms, what would the third path be that they recommend? So
1: I think this is... Um easiest to see perhaps in in Kingsley's work, The Water Babies. um, Kingsley's kind of advocating for a mutual respect for science and faith, um, partially based on this idea that science already has or eventually will provide support for that faith. Um, He does often get into kind of these long tangents where he kind of mocks scientists um, as, as, being kind of silly or or driven by their own pride and there locates that kind of doubt, not necessarily in science itself, but in the people who are doing the the scientific work and their own human, um, human error. Uh, But one of, one of these, an example for how he's wanting to sort of show this third path is one of his underwater characters is mother Carrie, who's kind of this, Huge fairy who's kind of godlike because she creates a lot of these underwater creatures. And when the main character, Tom, says, I heard that you are always making new beasts out of old, she says, I'm not going to trouble myself to make things, my little dear. I sit here and I make them make themselves. So here's this depiction of basically a Darwinist god figure who. Is not absent. The fact that these creatures are kind of making themselves and and going along, evolving in that way does not mean Mother Carrie does not exist. Um, it means that she works differently than Tom, the main character, supposed. So for Kingsley, that third path is melding what we're learning about the Earth with what we believe about God. Um, in Flatland, that third path is kind of about where we look for reliable knowledge. And I think Abbott, the author, is implying that we can't just rely on rational materialist evidence for things because that's not enough. It kind of makes me think about Kingsley saying, we once thought dragons were mythical, and then look, we found um, dinosaurs. Uh, you know, to someone who lives in a two-dimensional world like the square... The world would be, this world, the three-dimensional world would be unbelievable unless it has been perceived individually. Um, so I feel Abbott's kind of saying science is really great and we do need to use it for things um, and, and gain from it all that we can, but we should also allow for other definitions of what is reliable um, as a basis for belief and truth.
0: Yeah, I particularly found your point here interesting about the theme of doubt as an important turning point for speculative fiction. I want to just quote a little bit from your book. You write, quote, modern fantasy tends towards depictions of the departure of magic or some other instability in the governing structures of the marvelous world it presents, end quote. And this really resonated with me because it made me realize how frequently I've run across this theme. In my own reading of fantasy. Uh, I think a lot of our readers might be able to also recognize it in some widely recognizable contemporary examples like Game of Thrones or Star Wars. This idea that, that uh, even within the fantasy there's a danger that the magic is fading. I just found that amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. That was one of um, my favorite things I learned writing this book as well because, yeah, there are so many familiar stories. We could talk about Lord of the Rings too, how by the time we get into the story and enter Middle-earth, the elves are already leaving. You know, We're already at the end of this era of magic in Middle-earth. So I think... um, I think this is related to the fact that fantasy as a genre and I know this is oversimplifying a bit, but it tends to look backwards Um, when we think of classic fantasy, even if it's completely secondary world fantasy, it it is backward looking. We're being placed into sort of a medieval past. Um, So in my opinion, that looking backward is, is part of the function of the genre to see in that imagined past something of value, something that we would want to bring into modernity, that we don't want to be lost. At the same time, within the story, the departure of magic or the like process of that departure reflects the state that the modern reader is existing in. Um, you know, she lives in a world that's been disenchanted, this modern world, and that's part of the reason she may be reading fantasy. Um, so the theme of having magic, be lost and then brought back. I mean, in a lot of these stories, it is brought back. In Game of Thrones, oh, there haven't been dragons forever, and now there's dragons. Or um, in Star Wars, you know, the Jedi are gone, now there are Jedi. Um, that is reflective of kind of the reader's ideal experience of reading or watching fantasy. Um, you know, just like Luke Skywalker, you know, quick aside. I know it's science fiction, but it has a lot of fantasy elements. Many would call Star Wars science fantasy. Um, Agreed. Just as Luke Skywalker <laughs> is looking to the Jedi ways of the past to bring them into his present, the reader's finding value in this imagined past to bring that into her present life. Um, so I, I'm um, you as a, a reader of science fiction um, and, and maybe fantasy, uh, See, see other dimensions of that, but that's um, kind of where I locate that constant theme, is that the, that element of modern fantasy is reflective of our own experience of our world and, and what we want to get out of the past.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I loved that point. Um, but moving on to chapter three, uh, you look at Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as well as Bram Stoker's Dracula. And both of these are from the late 1880s. And you characterize them as urban Gothic fantasies that give expression to fears about the potential consequences of the waning influence of Christianity. So that's really interesting because that's basically the threat of evil or basically the fear that the threat of evil will go unchecked without some supernatural force of good to combat it like Christianity. And you make a really interesting point about the role of science and what you term the instrumentalization of religion in these novels. So please tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So these two novels, um, they kind of get at that third path idea by necessity. They're positing this fairly secular modern Britain where supernatural goodness seems to not really be around anymore, but supernatural evil still is. So what do we do about that? Um, And their answer, both of them, I I think is kind of devising, cobbling together a compromise about how to deal with supernatural evil in this new late Victorian world. Uh, So when I talk about Jekyll and Hyde, I do this close reading to show that Mr. Hyde isn't depicted, like some critics have said, as just our buried animal natures that have like actually been set free now. Um, He's actually depicted as an evil being on a supernatural level, like Um, demonic, almost. So this is a problem because a present relational God on whom a character could rely to combat this evil is not present in the text, and nor really is any kind of supernatural good that might kind of be the mirror of Hyde and, and battle him somehow. What is still in the context of Dr. Jekyll's life is the social pressure of religion, And the novel seems to suggest that we somehow need to keep at least that around. Um, Whenever religion is really mentioned in that book, it is kind of about the social pressure of it or doing it for social reasons. Um, During this really brief part, when Jekyll kind of swears off becoming Mr. Hyde, that's when he becomes kind of known in the, um, in his neighborhood for religion. Um, But it's, it's not necessarily that he believes it. He hasn't had some kind of, conversion experience. Um, It's about him, I think, trying to use that to keep Mr. Hyde at bay. So this is a pretty cynical third path, but we do need to consider that Stevenson was an atheist, so having God intervene somehow wouldn't necessarily be true to his worldview. But he does appear to be wrestling with this question of how do we deal with evil in a world without God. Um, Dracula, I believe, has an even more fascinating third path idea going on. So this is where religion is really instrumentalized in terms of like literally instruments being made of religious objects in order to fight vampires. So in this book, God and supernatural goodness do exist, but God isn't necessarily the personal, relational, caring being that we might expect instead religion and by extension, God becomes something that's bound by rules and tools and instruments. It basically becomes another science that humans are able to use in order to fight evil. So one really clear place to see this is just the use of religious objects. It's really significant, I think. And my, uh, I have to credit my, um, my dissertation director, Lori Branch for, Kind of first noting this, that the host, blessed communion bread, is used throughout Dracula to fight vampires, but no one actually ever takes communion. It's just there all the time, but no one ever actually uses it for its original purpose, which is to have this deeper relationship with God. Van Helsing actually smushes the bread up into these little cylinders to place around a vampire's tomb in the dirt. Explaining that he has, quote, an indulgence, meaning that, like, some Catholic official has said it's okay for him, I suppose, to use this to fight vampires or, or, or something similar. Um, and the most troubling scene with the host happens after Mina, who's really held up on this pedestal in this book, is just this perfect woman, so virtuous. She's attacked by Dracula, who drinks her blood and makes her drink his. Um, In many ways, it's described um, as something kind of tantamount to rape. And after that, Van Helsing is comforting her and attempts to bless her by putting a piece of the host to her forehead, but it only burns her. So, again, it's like there are these rules and um, instruments that do cause real effects um, that are based on Christianity and that supernatural goodness is real. But what's missing is kind of God's personal knowledge of Mina and to know that she is a virtuous woman who does not deserve to be burned, um, you know, or a God who will come and intervene in some unknown way in response to um, the character's prayers. Um, so the third path that this book depicts depicts is a, a kind of a belief in the supernatural but one that humans can control. Spiritual is just another science, um, but that that means that um, we're losing that that personal relationship and that trust in God in favor of something that humanity can actually control and rely upon.
0: Right. Okay. In your final chapter, you look at a handful of works notable for their deliberate avoidance of religious themes, beginning with Lewis Carroll's landmark novel, Alice in Wonderland, published in 1865, followed by a few works from William Morris published during the 1890s. And you argue that by presenting enchanted landscapes as almost entirely separate and irrelevant to the real world, these authors are revealing their underlying sense that Britain's belief in the, or sorry, Britain's unbelief in the supernatural was by this point both inevitable and irreversible. So this is particularly interesting considering the biographies of these two authors. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, So yes, first I'll start by saying Carol and Morris were two very different men who wrote very different books. The Alice books are intended for children, whatever their actual readership ended up being and are, you know, we all know very playful, nonsensical, fun. Um, Morris's fantasies are, are, you know, they're interesting. They're less fun. They're difficult to read. They're written in a kind of faux medieval style and they're, they're fairly self-serious, um, for as, you know, fantastical as they want to be. Um, the reason that these books are all in this chapter is that their fantasy worlds both signal a kind of nostalgia for a former time, but they're nearly or entirely impossible for someone in our real world to get into or approach. Um, the end of Alice in Wonderland implies that Wonderland is strictly accessible during childhood, if at all. Her older sister at the end of the book reflects on the fact that even she is too old to access Wonderland. And the Morris fantasies take place in a world that seems like the medieval past, but it's clearly one that Morris made up. So um, I'm not arguing, um, first of all, that, that Carol and Morris are intentionally using these fictions to say that Britain's entry into this age of disenchantment is complete. Um, you know, while in chapter two, I was really focused on plot and character and how the authors are intentionally using them to get a point across about doubt. In this chapter, I focus more on the form that the fantastic is taking and its relationship to reality. I'm more interested in just what that form that these authors happen to give their their fantasies says about the crisis of faith in Britain. So as I said before, both authors are showing this intense sense of nostalgia, Carol for childhood, Morris for a medieval past. Both of these are times when enchantment um, was still possible. So as I'm saying enchantment, I'm talking about um, the term that Max Weber would use talking about the modern world being disenchanted. So um, in an enchanted world, you know, if we think of medieval times, even the Renaissance maybe, and earlier, it's when you could kind of – credit things that were mysterious, spiritual, metaphysical, with, you know, um, happenings around you that you could observe. Um, Why did the storm come? Why are the, um, why did the laundry fall off the line? It was fairies or it was God or it was spirits or something. Um, Now he would say we live in this disenchanted world in which, The reasons for nearly everything we look at that happens, we assume, has a rational materialistic um, cause. So, anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent. But um, these books, these fantasy books, significantly make those fantasy lands that reflect childhood or the medieval era almost completely inaccessible to someone like the reader. Um, Much of the chapter discusses how they're inaccessible and why that's such a critical moment for the genre. Morris's fantasy novels, which um, are called things like the, the Wood Beyond the World or The Water of the Wondrous Isles, um, he really liked W's. <laughs> There's a lot of W's in all of his titles. Um, they're the first true examples of what Farrah Mendelssohn calls secondary world fantasy, which is where the entire book takes place in a fantasy world that never connects to the reality of the reader. Now, this is really commonplace. So Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, those are both secondary fantasy works. Um, But it's significant that that huge moment for this genre, that real true split of fantasy from the real world of the reader happened at the close of the 19th century.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. And you talk about how those novels then set the tone for the fantasy genre as we see it today. So basically that this uh, nostalgia for a magical past that might resemble our past uh, has come to kind of dominate the genre.
1: Yeah. And it it kind of, it makes me think a little bit about um, you bringing out that quote about magic fading, right? Um, Like that the development of secondary world fantasy is in one way, kind of magic departing from, um, From our world, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, um, there's no there's no way that the reader can fantasize that they would fall through a portal or, you know, get caught up in a cyclone and And appear in this magical world that they have been reading about and been kind of living their imaginary world in that's not possible now obviously we have all of these we still have portal fantasies and um, and intrusive fantasies and all these other types of fantasy um, uh, but yeah that that secondary world fantasy is the kind of unique kind of nostalgia um, for <sighs> For not necessarily our own medieval past, because now we're looking back on it kind of as modern subjects who are living in that eminent frame, but more as like, we're nostalgic for the medieval past as people who lived in it would have seen it. We're nostalgic for that sense of enchantment of that, sure, maybe dragons are real. No one's seen one in a long time, but you never know. I mean, that's kind of how the first book of Game of Thrones is. Right. We don't look at back at the medieval past as that. We can't we can't feel that way anymore. But secondary world fantasy like a song of ice and fire or like um William Morris's pieces, uh, allow us to kind of inhabit that enchantment again in our in our psyches and um and feel that um sense of belief that that it's kind of difficult to get at anymore.
0: Yeah, and you conclude your book, um By continuing to think about the contemporary scene of literature and storytelling um, and applying your methodology about where you locate uh, doubt, uh, whether it be in certain characters or in the reader, so you apply that to contemporary trends with uh, fantasy and science fiction. So I want to ask you about um, your opinion on the contemporary scene, because I, I would make the argument that these kinds of genres are starting to dominate modern storytelling. And I'm sure there's there those that would totally disagree with me. But if you look at the um, popularity of um, zombie narratives, dystopian narratives, which I would you know put under the umbrella of speculative fiction, um, I think it really points to, to your point that we uh, – and I'll quote you again here – that we are experiencing a cultural world that the 19th century authors created – So I wondered if you had more examples to point to that kind of trend. And I also wanted to ask you um, what you think about the current skeptical or atheist landscape of today um, and maybe how that connects to our fiction as compared to that of the Victorians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of a loaded question. (laughs) No,
1: no, that's okay. Um, So starting kind of with your first question, I totally, I agree with you that in, in terms at least of mass popular culture, yes speculative fiction is dominating modern storytelling um you know one thing i note in the book is that if we think about the 20th century most most of the top grossing movies were often big historical dramas like the 10 commandments gone with the wind titanic things like top gun you know or um i guess top gun is not a historical drama but you know like um realism (laughs) uh but the last non-fantasy or science fiction movie to be the top-grossing film in a given year was Mission Impossible 2 in the year 2000. So now we've had 18 years in a row, the top-grossing movie is a speculative a work of speculative fiction. And there's no sign of that really stopping. I mean... I think you're going get calendars now of just how ha- like how many superhero movies are coming out in a given year. Um, and we're also kind of in this wonderful heyday of really thoughtful, well-directed, well-written, um, kind of highbrow science fiction movies. If you think about like Arrival, Interstellar, um, th- those ex machina, those kinds of films are also getting a lot of, um, a lot of play in kind of that mass popular culture. So, um, just to really briefly kind of sum up the epilogue, I, I kind of do these brief readings of two movies that I see speculative spaces still talking to religious issues for us moderns today. Um, and those two movies are Prometheus and Interstellar. So Prometheus, um, a really Scott movie, uh, the sequel has since come out. I think it was called... Uh, Uh, Covenant. Yes. Thank you. I thought it was that, (laughs) but I thought that's too on the nose (laughs) um, for something having to do with religion. Um, Prometheus is a movie that's basically Frankenstein, but if a bunch of human scientists were playing the role of the creature and monster. So, Oh, by the way, I should say huge spoilers for both of these movies. So skip ahead, you know, 30 seconds if you need to. Um, But basically these scientists go look for their creator, horribly disappointed. Their creator is incredibly inadequate for the emotional wounds they're expecting them to heal. Um, in Interstellar, it seems like a story about going to contact a higher being in this case, an alien that exists in multiple dimensions, but those aliens end up being just humanity in the far future. Who's, who can manipulate time and go back and influence the present. So that movie is about seeking, this kind of higher being, but ultimately it's about the triumph of human self-sufficiency that we only need ourselves. We don't need some metaphysical um, being in the heavens to save us. So um, some other just examples of, uh, of things, uh, big mass popular movies that, um, that are science fiction and that I think um, are also speaking to religion in a similar way that um, these texts were in the Victorian period are things like gravity, warm bodies Minority Report, Ex Machina, Signs, as kind of corny as people think that one is, Another Earth, um, if people want to go out and keep watching these kinds of things. Um, to your point about kind of the skeptical landscape of today compared to the Victorians, I first, I think the Victorians probably were worried that by this time, religion would be completely gone, and we can see how incredibly untrue that is. Um some similarities I see between today and and that the crisis of faith um period is that we're still having this creationism debate um, you know I, just to be personal here, I don't think we should be having it. I think most people don't think we should be having it. and, and I am a um a religious person um so that is an, a legacy we have from the victorians um There's still the necessity of squaring. And negotiating our religious beliefs with what we know scientifically about the world. Um, and this seeking of a third way. Uh, I think that the rising interest in new age spirituality, there's been a lot of kind of think pieces about millennials and astrology lately um, and, and other kinds of uh, mishmashes of different spiritual practices. I think that really reflects the height of um spiritualism in the last part of the 19th century uh which was when kind of third way people were looking to um people were having lots of séances and and such things some key differences i think you know the largest society in um britain especially britain uh, has become vastly more secular obviously um you know, there's not a lot of actual huge dips in, like, church attendance in the 19th century, um, it, not nearly in the way that that we we see today. Um, and today it's possible to grow up with really no experience of religion at all, um, which, you know, despite all of everything going on in the 19th century, that would not have happened for the Victorians. Um, you know, I used to teach English, and I'd be kind of surprised at some um, references that, that students I just had no, no context for. Even one of my um, colleagues in my PhD program kind of like needed to be reminded who Moses was like these things that for the Victorians were just uh, on the tip of their tongues. It was, it was in the culture. It was air. It was everything. Um, That's it's possible to grow up without those contexts now. Um, Another difference is that, um, you know, music, or uh, art and music and kind of pop culture that has to do explicitly religion with religion has kind of been relegated to this sort of separate closed off cultural realm. You know, we have Christian radio and then we have all the other radio. We have the Christian romance section and then we have all the other romance, um, or Christian fiction or whatever. So there's this strange split that's happened in, um, in art, uh, and that was not really something that had, that the Victorians knew about. So um, kind of, I've been going on for a while, but our, to kind of close this question, I think our fiction today reflects that we still need a space to talk about issues of belief and doubt and faith. Um, and we're also in desperate need of a shared mythos. Uh, we don't, without these shared like contexts or um, references like Moses, we need something some shared stories to be able to agree upon and superheroes actually seem to be filling that gap right now i think in the way that every victorian would be expected to know the entire story of moses in the reeds and his um his uh, his entire story in the bible now we kind of assume everyone knows how batman's parents died (laughs) um and we need that in order to function as a society i think everything a society needs shared stories so Um, And part of the price you pay of being a secular society that really values independence is you lose some of that shared agreement on what stories are worth telling. Um, Those stories throughout human history have been what we call now speculative um, and about things that are bigger than the material and the rational. Realism just does not cut it for humans, I think, in terms of um, the stories we tell our children that have Deep meaning. We need stories that are larger than our everyday lives to deal with those questions, and I think we're continuing to do that.
0: I love that. I love the idea that uh, that Batman's personal story is maybe taking some kind of place <laughs> as a meta narrative for our culture. I'm going to try to tweet (laughs) about that. Uh, But um, Eliza, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, But before you go, I'd like to ask you about your current work, because you're doing some very interesting things. You're currently at the University of Missouri-St. Louis in Corporate and Foundation Relations. Um, And as a realistic PhD student, I'm acutely aware of the possibility that I, too, will use my research and writing skills to go on to a career that is not that of a tenured university professor. So I'm interested to hear about <laughs> your experience. Um, and earlier you mentioned that, uh, to me that you feel that your academic experience continues to fuel other aspects of your life in meaningful ways. So I'd love it if you could talk about that. And maybe also about sure. how you managed to find the career path you're on now.
1: Yeah. So um, a kind of brief uh, recap of how I ended up um Uh, in corporate and foundation relations is uh, that I about a year and a half before I was set to graduate and complete my PhD, I decided not to go on the academic market at all. Um, I didn't apply to one professor job. Um, And that decision is another longer story, Uh, but it probably very too long for now. But the short version is that I realized that I wanted some key things in my life, Um, the ability to choose where I live, uh, financial stability, (laughs) structure, that I didn't think going on the academic market would give me um you know I I had a lot of friends who had gone on it the year before I was set to do that um and saw how that it turned out um and I kind of I wanted to sort of take charge of of my career and not have the market decide for me um what I was going to do so uh, I kept it pretty quiet, but I went for lots of places for advice about how to find a quote unquote normal job. Um, I made the decision to move to Chicago, uh, I- I emailed a lot of undergraduate alumni that I found on my undergrad's website for informational interviews. I looked up anyone who had majored in the humanities and seemed somehow gainfully employed in Chicago. It's something I might like doing. I applied for lots of jobs over about a six month period before I moved there. And while I was finishing up my dissertation and did a couple of visits to Chicago where I had just a bunch of informational interviews with people. Um, I moved and about, Six weeks later, I started uh, a full-time job um, that that I got, I found out about through an informational interview, applied, um, went through an interview process about the first month that I was living in Chicago, um, and then was hired as a writer for corporate and foundation giving at the Field Museum. So um, for any, you know, literature PhDs, out there who are listening or humanities PhDs or people who have written a lot, I'm going to put in a plug for development, which is a fancy, a nice word for fundraising. Um, people are looking for people to write grants and, you know, I I think the preparation that a PhD gives you in writing, um, to persuade, uh, writing for a specific type of audience, um, translating really complicated concepts into something understandable to someone who is not you. I think those all really lend themselves to grant writing. Um, of course you can use that to, you know, to go on and do some other sort of career. Um, you know, everyone should know that the first job you get outside of your PhD, you are not committed to forever. It does not decide the trajectory of your entire life. Um, but if you're, you know, for your first full-time job after graduating, development is not a bad place to land. So, um, getting to kind of the rest of your question, you know, now that it's three years later after graduation, I, I've kind of had varying experiences and how I think those seven years I spent in graduate school, um, uh, and the decision to, to do that, there's, there's been different ways I've thought about it, but, um, but now how I try and see them is in a really positive light that I got this wonderful opportunity to study what I love and teach English. Um, it, you know, something that very few people get to do. I mean, I've kind of had this pet theory of um, maybe we should start thinking of um, graduate school in English like the Peace Corps. Um, like it's something you intentionally choose to do for a set of years where you are you fully acknowledge you will be able to save no money. There's not definitely a job for you when you get out, but you are choosing to use some part of your young life to soak up something that you love. Um, of course, you know, at, at the time when I first left, I did have that sense of being let down and unprepared for the actual job market that many, many doctoral students have had and which they're talking about openly. And I'm really glad about that. Um, I really don't think I did enough job research on actual job prospects before I went into my PhD. But then again, I also did start my program in 2008. So no one really kind of knew how, how dire things were about to get. Um, And today, I think my background as a PhD does enrich my life and my relationships. I work on a university campus, and I'm really proud to display my doctorate Um, certificate in my office. It gives me a connection with the faculty and the deans that I work with to raise money for the university. Um, It also just gives me something unique that sets me apart from my coworkers, which is something I sort of missed while I was in graduate school, that this thing that makes me special isn't really special because everyone around me loves literature just as much and is probably better at it than me. Um, But when you get out in the real world, it's kind of nice to be the literature expert and to be the one that's that obsessive about something. Um, And you can find ways in your alt-act or non-act job to express that. At the Field Museum, I started and I ran a book club um, that met every month. Uh, At UMSL, I'm trying to get this Eliza's Poem of the Day thing going. Um, And I like kind of being known as that literature person. Mm. Uh, as I just told you, I've just gone through a pretty busy time of getting engaged, buying a house and moving. And so right now, um, I finally have a, moved in and, and feel like I have a bit of a pause to kind of start thinking about what to do next with these passions I have. You know, I was working on this book on and off for the first two years after I graduated. Um, and now I'm just kind of feeling this wide landscape of possibilities open. I, I have decided I, I want to keep writing, but, but what will that be? Um, I recently completed the first draft of a short story, like actually trying to write a piece of fiction, like what I've studied all these years. Um, and I'm just kind of continuing to discover how I want to continue to write fiction, to write about fiction, to write about faith, um, and also to write and speak about career decisions for PhDs, because I I think that's this huge issue right now um, in that, P, you know, PhDs need to be empowered to and, and confident to feel like they can choose their future life. Um, so that's
0: kind of what the future is uh, hopefully holding for me. So we'll see how it goes. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for that. And you recently, um, you actually spoke at a conference, I believe, about those very issues. Did you know? Yeah. So
1: um, beyond the professoriate, um, this great uh,
0: organization
1: that's run by Marin Wood and um Jennifer Polk, uh, they have an online conference. They have, I mean, a ton of resources, but they have an online cor- conference every year where, um, I'm pretty sure how it works is universities subscribe. And then if you're a student at that university, you can like listen in. Um, but you can also rent the videos online. Um, and I was part of a panel of people who had PhDs who are now working in higher education, but just not as faculty. Um, so you people can go to beyondtheprofessoriate.com um, and, and just look at all of their resources that they have. Marin Wood actually came to my university right when I was deciding not to go in the academic market and did this whole talk about how to get an, a non act job. And she was the first person who taught me just what to do. I took down everything she said and, and
0: tried to basically follow it. And it worked. I got a job. So they know their stuff. That's great. And we will definitely link that website in the show notes as well on the blog. Um, Yeah. So that's awesome. Thank you so much again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book. I was so glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it.
1: Thank you, Carrie. I really enjoyed this. Um, it's, it's wonderful to talk academics again. Um, and if, uh, you know, if people want to um, easy links to buy the book, I'm sure you'll have it on your site. Or if they um, just want to get a hold of me to talk about career stuff, um, my LinkedIn is on uh, ElizaSanders.com. So people can just go there and, and figure out how to get a hold of me.
0: Perfect. And you've got a brand new website as well. And I'll be linking that on the show notes as well. So people can find you there. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Eliza. Goodbye. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to the New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Elizabeth M. Sanders about her book, Genres of Doubt, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and the Crisis of Victorian Faith. To purchase the book or learn more about Eliza's work, you can visit her website, www.elizasanders.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. As a not-for-profit organization, all of the buzz that you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I'm also looking for a co-host for this show. My goal is always to get out two interviews per month, but at certain times of the year, this is more challenging. So with a co-host, we'd be able to be more faithful to our publication schedule. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. Did you find this book fascinating? Let us know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye. Until my next conversation about New Books and Secularism.